This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For the last two weeks, the world has been mesmerized around Thailand and the rescue of the youth soccer team stuck in a cave uh, a half mile below the surface. The team found an area where they could stay relatively dry but were cut off from the rest of the world. Incredible planning and leadership by various agencies in the country and outside experts helped to get the boys and their coach safely out of that cave and did so before the wave of typhoon rains blocked up the passage out of the cave. It's an incredible story of leadership. We are joined here in studio by Mike Useem, who is a management professor here at the Wharton School, as well as director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management. He also uh, hosts Leadership in Action here on Sirius XM 111 every Thursday evening and has authored several books about leadership. Great seeing you, Mike. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Dan, great to be here. It is just, I, I mean, it's it's one thing where the boys obviously got into this with, with the coach, but the process of all of these different agencies, and it is a multinational event that we saw occur to get these boys and the coach out of there. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary, and one article summed it up so well with a phrase saying it was a matter of muscle and brain power, muscle being equipment and scuba systems and so on, but brain power was a reference to the fact that with about 10,000 rescuers on site— and to quote yeah. one of the Thai SEALs who was in there, the whole world watching, uh, the person in charge, uh, I, I'll reference him in a few minutes here, uh, <laughs> brought discipline, brought organization, brought decisive decision-making such that the 10,000 people from five or six different countries, including the U.S., were able to get in and get this team out. And, and seemingly, and obviously there were some injuries and, and one diver lost his life, but seemingly the efforts to get the boys out went flawlessly, which when you think about all the different aspects to this, it, it it's amazing <laughs> how well this went once they decided how they were going to get the boys and the coach out of there. Absolutely. So it, uh, that's the brain power part. They had to think through how they were actually going to extract the boys once they found them. It took some days, as we all know, to do that. They had to think how they were going to evacuate, as they ultimately did, about a half billion gallons of water to yeah. try to bring the water down. Just a huge engineering problem on that. Uh, the one, uh, well, more than flaw, one uh, retired uh, Thai SEAL, Thai diver, did lose his life in the, in the process. Aside from that terrible, terrible loss of life, um, this is a miracle in that the initial estimates uh, – Dan, were that it could take up to four months yeah. to get these guys out. They're out. They're apparently in pretty good shape. Well, and the amazing thing, when you think about the removal of the water, as you said, uh, it was almost a constant process. And the fact that uh, you were able to get pumps in there, you know, get all of this, uh, this uh, mechanical uh, work done to be able to remove it. But the problem is, is that the way this cave was situated, the water was continuing to come in at various points, which, you know, it's it's like you're removing one set of water and yeah, having totally. to deal with another set. So uh, to make all that happen, think of this as a sort of a three-pronged or a three-legged stool. Uh, the government in Bangkok uh, sent uh, money, supplies, uh, army folks. Uh, a person on site, a, uh, what's called a provincial governor appointed by the central government, uh, he brought a discipline. I'm going to quote him here just to provide a sense for the discipline he imposed on the 10,000 people involved in the rescue. He said, at near the start, uh, we're going to make this rescue work. 
And here's the quote. Anyone who cannot make enough sacrifices can go home and stay with their families. You can sign out and leave straight away. I will not report any of you. But for those who want to work, you must be ready any second. Uh, And then just think of them as our own children. And, of course, what he's doing there is he's reminding everybody of of what the task is and how vital their service and tough real-time decision-making was going to be. A third party, of course, was the group inside the uh, trapped about a mile and a half in this tunnel who had to keep themselves alive and fit while they were being uh, uh, ultimately discovered and then extracted. And the coach, who's been much criticized for getting the boys in there to begin with, uh, played a vital role in in helping the boys appreciate they had to share the little food they had. They had to be careful about the flashlight use and so on. So the government, an on-site leader, and then inside the cave itself, three parties, they pulled it together. Also joining us right now, Andy Evis, who is president of the International Union of Speleology, which is the study of, of caves. Andy, great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thank you. It, I was just mentioning with uh, with Mike Usim here in the studio. Just the, I mean, this is an incredible story of leadership and and, and process to be able to obviously mm. once the the boys and the coach were in that cave to be able to figure out how to be able to get them out with all of these different factors kind of going against them. Uh, yeah, I I think events overtook them really, and they they finished up with little choice other than having to bring them out. The, um, the, the, the choices then, of course, were how they brought them out. And uh, the exact details of that, we don't really know. And indeed, I, I'm not sure they brought them all out in exactly the same way. But however they did it, it worked. And uh, it was very mm-hmm. successful. I, I'm actually meeting one of them on Sunday. And uh, mm-hmm. I will find out know exactly what happened then tell us more tell us more about the process of of doing a rescue like this because uh you know we see here in the united states obviously there are various caves all across this country some of them have been transformed into uh tourist destinations but in this situation uh you know obviously the water and the water rise plays a, a huge role in really uh, crimping the opportunity to be able to do just a normal coming out of the cave rescue, basically doing the reverse of, of what they did in terms of going into the cave in the first place. I mean, just in a few words, what, what we had was a tourist cave going for something like half a mile, and that was the end of the tourist cave. Beyond that, there were two small passages and these boys and the coach initially got over-adventurous and they went beyond the show cave and up one of these inlet smaller passages. When they were up there, a wall of water came down, as it occasionally does in caves, and this was the start of the wet season, the end of the dry season, and this wall of water came down and they must have realised that it blocked the passage behind them. So they actually went further in against the flow of the water to find somewhere where they could climb out and get above the water. And some of these boys knew the cave. They'd been in there before. Uh, And so I suspect they knew that there was this higher level area where they could go to stop themselves from drowning. And that's where they were. And that's where they were, uh, well, for two weeks in in the end. I mean, there there are a number of interesting factors that have come out since our guys have come home, yeah. I mean, we've been thinking 
that they were sitting in the dark for the first nine days. But in fact, they weren't. They, they had light and they conserved, rationed the light. So the worst thing in that situation, and I can say from personal experience, is the absolute total darkness. You don't know whether your eyes are open or closed. And that is horrible. And nine days of that for anybody would be very serious. But it sounds as though they rationed the light and they had some light. The same, I think, is true. They had some food. All right, we we may have lost Andy. We'll try and get back to him in just a second. But it, it does, it, it kind of playing off of what Andy says, yeah. uh, it, it not only says a lot about the coach being able to keep them under control, but it does say a lot about the boys themselves of remaining relatively calm in this incredibly harrowing situation. Yeah, Dan, the parallel with the 33 miners in Chile comes to mind. They were trapped on August 5th, uh, now six years ago, and they were underground 2,000 feet uh, in in darkness as well. They did have lights, but it was very dark down there uh, until October 12th and 13th. And what is striking from what Andy just said is that the survival mentally and physically of this uh, group, this uh, boys age 11 to 16, uh, depended on many factors, including the coach's own determination to help them preserve their little light that they had. He worked a, a rationing system, apparently, out of uh, when lights could be on and how they would be used. Yeah. They had a little food. Um, he worked a rationing of that. They didn't know when they were going to get any food at all. It took nine days. And then there was an the issue just of, of uh, water, drinkable water. And apparently he demonstrated to the uh, the boys that if um, you were very careful of coming up against a wall where there was a bit of a water drip and you got your tongue out, you could actually get some fresh water. Main point is, though, the rescuers on the surface or in the mouth of the cave couldn't do a thing um, if they got there and the boys were not uh, had not survived that. So in that sense, the the, the uh, the, the captain, the coach of the team, uh, provided a service very much like what happened with the miners in Chile. There were two people who stepped forward, 33 people trapped, but two in particular stepped forward and said, uh, let's, form a, let's form a team here, let's ration, let's be careful, let's uh, yeah. pay attention to each other, same thing. Andy, we've got you back. Go ahead and, and finish your thoughts there. Um, well, I, I think I fairly rounded up. I don't know when you actually cut out, but the... Um, the interesting thing between the coach and the, the, the footballers is to remember that the, 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 the footballers were up to age 18 and the coach was only age 25. Yeah. So there was not a massive age difference. So how much control the coach had over them, I don't know. I mean, when I talk to my friends who were there, you know, they'll, they'll tell me more about that. But, you know, how much he was instrumental in them going mm. in and how much he was instrumental in planning their survival underground. Um, I think at the moment we are guessing somewhat. Well, and and that, I guess, Mike, goes to uh, playing off of something that you said a moment ago, is that, or that I should say that Andy said a moment ago, is the fact that even if you didn't have light, the communication part between the boys and the coach in that nine-day period, and then in the time during the rescue, the communication has to be very important as well to be able to stay on point, stay on message, and, as you pointed out, be able to ration food, be able to ration light, be able to to stay on basically a plan so you can survive as long as possible. Yeah, Dan, the uh, Bangkok Post, which is the main or one of two main English-language newspapers in Bangkok, Thailand, 
uh, has reported that indeed the the coach did play. Uh, he got him into the mess to begin with, but once there, he held it together himself. And it's really a statement that people in, in, under a dire circumstance with a leadership responsibility have got to step forward and exercise it. And the reports are that he was able to do that indeed to keep the boys relatively fit, as it turns out they are or were as they came out. Uh, and I just want to add that uh, back on the surface of the – or back back at the entry in the cave or where the staging was for the uh, the rescue, <clears throat> can't overstate how many different parties were brought together yeah. by this provincial governor, somebody appointed by the national government uh, who said want only people who were totally committed. And if you think about what he had to do, there were about 10,000 rescuers involved. Uh, we had um, uh, probably hundreds of media people. In the case of the Chilean miners, they had 2,400 journalists on site. So had to work, had worry about the media world, had to worry about the government in Bangkok, had to worry about the divers, had to keep them safe. And so one of, one of the heroes here unequivocally is the man in charge who uh, from start to finish said, we've got to get this done. Andy, you agree? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I, I certainly do. I mean, the the the... The cave divers did the sharp end, but they had a great deal of, of help and a huge number of people facilitating that. And, you know, the, 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 the Thai authorities were not slow or not very slow yeah. at paying the airfares and getting the team out there. And they then, once they realised what the situation was, they facilitated what the cave divers want. And it's important, really, that the fact that they were cave divers. It's a different world when you're diving underwater, underground. It's very different from scuba diving in open water. And, you know, crawling along tight passages full of water underground is not something that that many open water divers are very comfortable with. And so it did become the very sharp end became the realm of the cave divers. And that's what they're there for. I mean, the the press conference they gave this morning, they're saying, this is what we do. You know, this is our hobby. We do this. Not bringing bringing people out, but actually going into those, that situation, those places is is what they do. They are are underwater cave explorers, and that's how they get their kicks. That's what they do for hobby, and they (laughs) enjoy doing it. And these guys have got lots of records for that. And Andy, just to add to that, on this issue of, of the incredibly technical process of getting people into where the boys were, then getting everybody out, uh, among the steps that were taken was to bring in very quickly uh, one of the uh, Thai SEALs, a, a diver, who was also a physician. And he was one of the few people that they could quickly find who knew medicine and knew how to scuba dive in a cave. Uh, a rare skill there, of course, as well. And apparently he was dispatched to where the boys were and then stayed with them to make certain that medically they were going to get through the next, uh, again, harrowing period as they're then working the extraction out. So it speaks, I think, uh, to the incredibly technical set of skills and the integration of so many different factors. For example, the pumping out of a half billion gallons of water into neighboring Thai farmers' fields, that also was uh, instrumental in in allowing the rescue. Each of those steps very uh, 
just say very technical, and thank gosh, goodness there were a lot of smart people on site. Well, and, and also, Mike, the fact that, I mean, all of the different people that helped in the in the rescue, but also the fact that a lot of the people that lived there, the locals in and around that cave, sure. came to cook meals for the people that were doing the rescues. Yeah. To, 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 you know, to, I mean, we think about the rescue itself, but there are so many pieces that are around the rescue that were very important for the people that were trying to save those boys to begin with. Dan, there's one great story that makes that point very well. As the uh, half billion gallons of water were pumped out of the cave system into neighboring farmers' fields, it was destroying crops of, of small farmers that lived in the vicinity. The government offered to uh, uh, reimburse them for the damage to their their rice and other kinds of crops, and the local farmers said no. Uh, we we've uh, we've made our contribution. Uh, this is what we can do. Others have made their contribution, and so many of the volunteers, Andy. This is no doubt uh, true of your world. When there's an emergency like this, people step forward expecting no compensation, no material uh, consequence because of the circumstance. And boy, that was demonstrated uh, <laughs> in spades oh, here well, as it was back in Chile. Exactly the same over here. I mean, there's the, the British Cave Rescue has been coordinating things over here, and they've all obviously work for nothing and anybody who's had any fees for anything has put those fees towards the british cave rescue council towards you know the charity that that, that funds it all so you know they all fund some of it i mean it, most of it is generally funded by the individuals but you know the the thai government i must say have been very good at helping facilitate things shipping equipment out buying equipment shipping personnel out and so on and the the, the four seal divers went in early on and stayed there all the way through you know including the yep. medic and three others and the the great thing they could contribute as well as as you know the obvious like the medicine and the you know and the logistics was the fact that they could communicate so you know the 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 the, the western divers who were actually doing the ferrying didn't speak the language so they they needed they needed thai people there to be able to communicate between the, the cave divers and and the boys and the young men. How difficult is it, uh, Andy, for the divers themselves going through a lot of these areas, especially the ones that are underwater, when the water is seemingly dark? You're in a dark area. You may have a, a light, you know, attached mm-hmm. to your to your person going through, but it has to be incredibly dark for the most part for the expert divers as well. I mean, it's it's not incredibly dark. It's just totally dark. There's yeah. absolutely no light. You know, it's it's something that you need to experience for a while to really understand. And literally, you don't know whether your eyes are open or closed. And you suddenly find that the the dial on your wristwatch is incredibly bright. And uh, you know that that is is pretty extraordinary. Um, but the 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 crux of this, the real first very important thing was the two divers getting through to start with and i i know they had a real struggle to get through because they were fighting against the current in the water and i know they almost gave up but when they did get through that first time they took a big line a big rope with them and secured the rope through so that they could then pull themselves through using the rope on subsequent journeys so that first trip, that was the really important one. And if they hadn't have made it, if the current had been a bit stronger or, you know, the passage had been a bit smaller or, you know, or they, they you know, hadn't possibly been quite so brave, 
the, 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 the lads would have still been sitting there. And, uh, Andy, thank you very mm. much for your time today. Greatly appreciate you joining us over here in the United States. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Mike, great seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. It's a phenomenal story. Thanks for joining us. Dan, thanks for having me here. It's, it is an amazing story. Thank you. Mike, you've seen from here at the Wharton School, Andy Evis, president of the International Union of Speleology, joining us uh, from overseas. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.